Happy New Year and welcome to Center Church. If you are new, we're really, really glad you're here. It's a great time to be new because it's a new year. We're about to jump into a new sermon series in the book of Daniel, which I'm really, really excited about. But before we get to Daniel, unfortunately, I have to share some bad news with you, okay? And here's the bad news. According to a Gallup poll released in December, Americans' mental health ratings have fallen to an all-time low. Okay, they fall into an all-time low. So if you look at this table that the Gallup uh, group put out, it doesn't matter. Well, we're going to have a table in a second. It doesn't matter what category of person you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. 19 of 20 categories of people represent, are recorded decreases in their mental health except for one. Can you see the one that didn't? I made it really easy on you. I circled it, okay? The one group out of all of those that responded who increased uh, better mental health ratings last year than the year before were those who attended a religious service weekly. Those who attended a religious service weekly. Actually, it doesn't even help you if you go monthly or if you go never. Those are about the same. But those who attended a weekly or a religious service weekly reported mental health gains in 2020. Here's what, here's what that means. The data shows a strong correlation between your mental health and your attendance at church. Okay, that's not me. That's Gallup, right? You can't make this stuff up. They're not a Christian organization. So I want to start 2021 off with an invitation. You ready for it? I want to invite you to church. Okay, I want to invite you to church. If you're new, come back next week. Right? If you were here kind of sporadically through the fall, be here every single week this winter. If you're online and you've been online for a long time, maybe this is your moment to come back. I talked to a couple just last week, and I introduced myself, and I said, how'd you hear about the church? And they said, well, we've been watching online since March. We've been watching online since March, and we just decided it's a new year, and it is our time to come back to church. Praise the Lord. Okay? So I want to invite you to make a New Year's resolution with me. You ready for it? If I'm in town, I'm in church. Okay, if I'm in town, I'm in church. It's just that simple. I want that for you because it's amazing how much consistent attendance in church will change your life. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal. I know it seems like, oh, I've got a lot going on. I'll go two or three times a month. I'm just telling you, a weekly gathering with God's people will have revolutionary impact on your own personal life, on your walk with God, on your spiritual maturity. Okay, so I'm gonna invite you to church. The second thing I wanna invite you to is the weekender. The weekender. So the weekender is the one-stop shop for connection here at Center Church. And we have our next weekender coming up January 22nd through the 24th. If you are new or if you've been around for a while but you haven't gotten connected, this is for you. The data shows that the more connected you are to the church, the better you will do in 2021. So I want you to get better connected to the church. Okay, we'll feed you. We'll take care of your kids. It's a great time where you get to learn about what makes our heartbeat as a church and how you can get connected to community and serving and meet people here at Center Church. So put it on your calendar. You can go to centerseville.com backslash weekender to let us know you're coming and I would love to see you there. Okay, so before we jump into the book of Daniel, I'm just going to pray. And ask God to help us because I know there are a lot of obstacles to getting to church these days. All right, so let's just pray that God help us in 2021 really prioritize his church. Father, thank you for the local church. Thank you for the ways that I have been blessed and ministered to over the years. Thank you for the opportunity to preach to this group of people. And I pray, God, that we would be a group of people that takes church seriously, that is here every single week, that if we are in town, we are in church for our own sake and also for what it uh, says to our kids and what it says to our friends and what it says to our community, that you matter and that your people matter. So give us resolve to do that in 2021, Lord. We love you. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Daniel chapter 1, okay? Daniel chapter 1, and to be totally transparent, I did not think I'd be preaching Daniel right now, 
Okay, I planned my preaching schedule about 12 months in advance, but, you know, some things have changed. I don't know if you're aware of that, right? So some things have changed, and over the last uh, two months, I've just felt really led to the book of Daniel. And the reason is that the more you understand about the book of Daniel, the more you understand how remarkably relevant it is for this moment in time. Okay, let me try to explain to you why that is. Number one, Daniel was young. So in chapter one, Daniel was probably 17, Right? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but our church is young, okay? Like, I don't know what the average age is of our members, but it's probably like mid to late 20s. We were just talking to a group that was looking at our membership roster, and they're like, you might be the youngest church in America, right? Like, they literally were like, do you kick people out at 30? And we're like, no, we want more 30-year-olds. I don't know what the problem is, you know? So if you're 30, we're really glad you're If you're 50, we're really glad you're here, okay? Like, if you're watching online, we're really glad you're here. Okay, so Daniel was young, and we are young as a church. Here's the second thing. Daniel was in exile. He was one of these people that lived the majority of his life away from the people of God, the place of God, and the temple of God. When he was 17, he was taken out of Jerusalem, and he was taken captive all the way to Babylon. So he had to figure out how to live a faithful life in the midst of a non-Christian culture. Well, that is the same thing for us. We live in a non-Christian culture, and we have to figure out how to live a faithful life in the midst of it. And here's the last one. Daniel faced incredible uncertainty, incredible uncertainty. When his city was besieged, it took a, it took a couple of months. And in the the span of a couple of months, almost everything about his life changed. His financial situation changed. His work situation changed. His family situation changed. Even his political situation changed. And I think we can all relate with that, right? Over the last 12 months, almost everything about our lives have changed. But what I love about the book of Daniel is that it's it's Daniel at 85 years old looking back on his life and saying, hey, this is how God was faithful to me, and this is how I learned to live a faithful life in the midst of a very uncertain world. And so by studying his life, we're going to learn how to do the same thing. So what we're going to do is I'm going to walk us through chapter one, and then at the end of it, I'm going to draw out three commitments that we see Daniel made early in his life that enabled him to live faithfully in an uncertain world. So look at verse one with me. It says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So who was Jehoiakim? Well, he was the king of God's people. And his dad was a guy named Josiah, who was a really, really good, righteous king. But Jehoiakim, unfortunately, was a wicked king, which goes to show us you can't inherit faith, right? God has no grandchildren. He only has children, right? So it doesn't matter how godly your grandparents were or your parents were. What matters is what is your heart posture towards the Lord? And unfortunately, Jehoiakim's heart posture was very, very bad towards the Lord. He was a wicked king, and he led the people of God to be very, very wicked. Well, um, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and Babylon was this growing superpower in the east. And let me tell you, Babylon was Jehoiakim's worst nightmare, okay? Babylon is what kept Jehoiakim up at night. It gave him heartburn, okay? Like, he was terrified of Babylon. And so he did what a lot of us, unfortunately, often do when we're scared. Rather than trusting the Lord, he started trying to protect himself. And he did that by creating alliances with godless nations like Egypt that God had told him not to form, okay? But he goes out and he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll form this alliance with Egypt, and they'll protect me, and then, and then I'll, be, I'll be good. Well, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies down, and he, he has this big battle with the Egyptians, and he defeats the Egyptians. And so now, you know, the Israelites don't have any protection. And so, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar returns, and he goes, and he besieges Jerusalem. And what you'll notice in the text is verse 2, it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why would God do that? Why would God give his king into the hand of this pagan king? Well, because for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had told his people, if you persist in wickedness and sin, if you refuse to repent, there will be consequences. But unfortunately, the, the people of God did what we're often tempted to do. We say, not for me. 
right? That, that's how it works for everybody else, but I'm the exception. Certainly in this area of my life, in this particular thing, in this circumstance, there won't be consequences to my choices. Well, that's what the people of Israel thought as well. They thought God will never let us be conquered by Babylon. We're the people of God. He's made a covenant with them. And God said, no, I'm telling you, there are going to be consequences. They refused to repent. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand as discipline, as a consequence. What we'll see in this book is that God will never abandon his people. He's faithful to Daniel in Babylon. He'll never abandon you, but he will let you feel the consequences of your sin. If you and I refuse to repent, if we continue to walk in wickedness and foolishness, God will let us feel the sting of consequences so that it might wake us up to his faithfulness. So that's what he's doing with Jehoiakim. Well, if you look, it says that Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels out of the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he took them back to the temples of his gods back in Babylon. And this is just a clear picture of idolatry, okay? So idolatry is kind of a mega theme in Scripture. So we're going to double-click on that just for a second. What is idolatry? Is it like bowing down to wooden statues? Well, that, that would be like one form of idolatry, but I doubt many of you are going home and doing that tonight. Um, but at its essence, idolatry is when we worship a created thing rather than the creator God, okay? Any creator, any created thing rather than the creator God. Another way to say it is idolatry is when you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing. Right? Or when you take something and elevate it from the level of desire to the level of demand. All right, So let me give you just a couple examples. Um, what's wrong with marriage? Nothing. Marriage is a wonderful thing that God has created until it is what you have to have to be happy. Until marriage is what you have to have to be happy, and it's all you care about, and it's the center of your life, and you've got to got it, you're willing to do anything to get it. Okay, now we're sort of in idolatry land. Okay, uh, here's another one. What's wrong with food? nothing. Food is wonderful, right? Like food is delicious and God's created all these wonderful foods and all these wonderful restaurants in Charlottesville until you're using food for your feelings. And until you kind of lose control of food and now we're turning into gluttony and now we're getting unhealthy and now we're eating too much and we're gaining weight, right? It's become an idol in your life. Here's another one. What's wrong with wanting to be in shape? Well, there's nothing with, with wrong with wanting to be in shape until you care more about how you look on the outside than on the inside. What's wrong with wanting to have kids? Nothing. Kids are a blessing from the Lord until kids are what you must have to be complete. And when you have kids, your whole life is centered around the kids, and you've got to protect the kids, and you've got to give the kids all the opportunities, and they've got to do all the activities. What's happening? A good thing has become a God thing, or a desire in your life has been elevated to the level of demand. The truth is, we all have idolatry in our hearts, and if you don't think you do, it's just because you haven't thought about it long enough, okay? Like, newsflash, I've got tons of it, you've got tons of it, and part of growing in Christ is identifying what your idols are and repenting of them and saying, no, what, what the true God is better, and I'm going to worship him. But here's what I want to point out. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy the vessels of God. Did you notice that? What's he do with them? He takes them back to his temple. This is really important because this is what I think most of us are tempted to do. See, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to kill God. He didn't want to destroy God. He wanted to add God to his other idols. And unfortunately, this is usually what most of us want to do. Most of us don't want to destroy God. We, most of us don't want to become militant atheists, right? What do we want to do? We want to take God and we want to add him to a group of idols that we have in our lives. What does this look like? Well, I want to have God in my life. I also want my sexual desires. So I'll sleep with my girlfriend on Friday and I'll come to church on Sunday. Or I want God in my life, but I also love money. So what does that look like? Well, I'll serve on a volunteer team, but I'm not giving. Don't talk to me about giving. I'll walk away. I'll leave the church. I won't come to the sermon series about generosity. What is that? Well, that's God and idolatry. Or uh, how about this one? Um, I, I want God, but I also want to fit in. So I'll just sort of ignore parts of the Bible that offend my friends. Or I'll like act one way on Sunday and then another way like Monday through Friday, right? You ever been there? Oh, shoot, that was like me all of high school and college. 
right? We have these competing things. We don't want to get rid of God. We just want God to sort of fit into our list of idols. But here's what we all know, looking at this story. This is never going to work, right? Like, God is not going to be like, oh, sure, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I'll be, I'll be a God with, like, Baal and all these crazy, like, Babylonian gods. No, he's the one true God, and he will not share his throne. He won't do it. He wouldn't do it for Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he wouldn't do it for Nebuchadnezzar, and he won't do it in your life. So the question that this begs us is, where are you living like Nebuchadnezzar? Where are you asking God to sort of be one of a list of things in your life rather than the one true God? It's worth, worth thinking about. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief unit, kind of like his chief of staff, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, okay, so kind of the upper crust, the, the educated, the wealthy, youths without blemish, uh, so that refers to kind of internal health, blemish, of good appearance, so that's external appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, so they're articulate, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so, so here's what's happening, um, and I owe this insight to a pastor friend of mine. When you conquered a people in, in the ancient Near East, you could really do one of three things. You could expel them from the land, but that didn't often work because usually they would come back a generation later and, and retake the land. You could enslave the people, but beyond being sinful and wrong, it, it, was, it often led to revolt, right? And if you're Babylon, you don't have the forces necessary to keep like an entire world of people enslaved. And so the third thing you could do is you could entice the people to assimilate into your culture. So you could expel them, you could enslave them, or you could entice them. And Babylon got really good at enticing people. And here's what they would do. They would convince the upper crust, the young leaders of a, a country to adopt Babylonian beliefs, a Babylonian worldview, and Babylonian modes of behavior. And if you could convince the young leaders of a society to do that, they would go back and they would indoctrinate the rest of the people. And if you could do that, you had real power. Because now you don't have to try to keep them subjugated because now they've become one of you and you can actually leverage them to help conquer more people, okay? So the question is, how do you do that? Well, the Babylonian approach to that was university education. I mean, if you look at this text, I mean, you might as well call it the University of Babylon, right? I mean, it, okay, let's take a bunch of 17-year-olds, high school seniors, far away from home, southwest Virginia, and let's uh, give them room and board, right? Like give them a place to live, the king's wine, the king's food, and let's teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. It's like a religious studies class as a first year at UVA, right? <laughs> like this is just what Babylon did. It was their approach to shaping young men and women so that they might adopt a different worldview. So they wanted Daniel and his friends to abandon their faith in the one true God and instead to adopt Babylonian beliefs and Babylonian convictions and a Babylonian worldview. The truth is that, that that's what the University of Babylon did then, and that's what colleges and universities do today. I'm not against uh, colleges and universities. I, I went to a secular liberal arts college, but you need to understand that every university and college in the world has an agenda for your life. They aren't neutral. They have certain principles. They have certain beliefs. They have certain worldviews that they are trying to convince you of, that they are trying to impress upon you. And what that means is that if you're going to thrive as a Christian in a, uh, in a secular kind of public university or private university, you need to be ready. You need to know why you believe what you believe, right? Your answer in religious studies cannot be because that's what they told me in Sunday school, okay? Like, that's just not going to work well. You're going to get eaten alive if that's your answer, right? You need to know why you believe what you believe. You need to be deeply connected to a local church. You need to be connected to a church that can help you stay grounded, that can provide you with community, and can help you walk through these things because other people that are older than you also walk through them. They're like, yep, I know what you're talking about. Let me help you with that. Let me give you some resources on, no, there really are really good answers to what your philosophy professor, you know, 
asked you. You just don't know what they are. So let me help. Here's a book. Read that. Oh, great. And now you, you, know, you, you have some standing. Um, thirdly, you need to be ready to be different. You just need to be ready to be different. What I love about Daniel is he was not afraid to put a line in the sand and be different. He was more concerned with honoring God than fitting in. Let me just tell you, let me be really honest in your business a little bit. If you're a UVA student or a PVCC student or a student somewhere else, and you're a Christian, and you fit in perfectly at your university, you're doing something wrong, right? You just are, because every, you know, secular university in America is advocating um, beliefs and worldviews and systems of values that are antithetical to the gospel. I'm not saying everything they're teaching is wrong. You can learn a lot of really important things in a university, but foundationally, they do not agree with the scriptures. And so if you fit in perfectly, that's cause for concern, okay? Again, not against public universities. I went to a secular, uh, you know, liberal arts college, learned a lot there, but you just need to be ready like Daniel was if you're going to do well there. Okay, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, again, kind of the chief of staff, to allow him not to defile himself. Now, what I love about Daniel is that he was young, but he had a backbone. He had a backbone. He had convictions. He had fire in his belly. He cared more about honoring God than fitting in. And so he put a line in the sand, and he said, hey, I, I don't want to eat this food. Now, why, what big deal about the food? Well, one of the ways that God's people were set apart as different was that God said, hey, there are certain foods that are clean and certain foods that are unclean, right? Kind of like all you people doing Whole30 right now, right? Like there's some clean foods and some unclean foods. Well, the, the meat and the wine, Daniel pursued that as unclean food. And so he said, hey, I, I want to eat something different. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Why is that in there? It's showing us that God is sovereign over Babylon as much as he is over Jerusalem, okay? The, the good news, if you're a Christian, is that God's authority and power, God's jurisdiction has no local, national, or international boundaries. No matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, the Lord is in control and he can give you favor there. And if, and if you really start believing that, that God's pres God is just as present at your job and at home as he is at church, it'll, it'll change your life. It'll change how you interact with people. It'll give you a lot of courage because you'll know the Lord is with me. I'm not in this by myself. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So the chief of staff pushed back. And he's like, no, Daniel, we can't do this because if you look pale and stringy, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get mad and I'm going to get in trouble for it. And unfortunately, if we're honest, this is where most of us stop, isn't it? Like we, we get up courage to do something to honor God, like we're going to invite our neighbor to church. Like we're going to talk to our mom and dad about getting baptized. Like we're going to become a member. Like we're going to all these different things, whatever you're going to do, we're going to stop watching that. We're going to stop eating or drinking those things. We're going to stop going there. And then you get a little bit of pushback. You get just a little bit of opposition from your friend or your parents or whatever. And it's like, all right, I tried. All right, I tried, God, what do you want me to do? Well, what I love about Daniel is he is, he's resolved, right? He is, no, I'm 17 years old, but I've got a backbone. I've got some courage and I'm going to figure this out. So he takes a different approach. Look at verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, okay, so this is a different person than the chief, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So what Daniel did was he created a win-win situation. He said, look, I know you don't want to get in trouble, so let's do this. Let's just do a test. For 10 days, give us vegetables and water, and then just see how we look. And if we look really bad at the end of it, all right, fine, give us meat and wine again, you know, nobody's in trouble. But if we look fine, then let us keep eating the vegetables, right? Sometimes, sometimes you can't have a win-win situation. Like sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand, and it's like, I'm not changing this. But a lot of times you can find ways 
to have a win-win situation. And the more you do that in your, in your missional community, in your family, at work, the more influence you're going to have. Because here's the deal. If you're all about win-lose and you're all about winning all the time, that means you live with a bunch of losers. You ever thought about that? Right? Like if you're married and you're like, I'm going to win this argument, great, now you live with a loser. So who really won the argument? You know, like it's just if, if you can find a way to, to, to be gracious and to be winsome with the people that are uh, in charge, I mean, it's really practically helpful, right? Daniel's just a, a very wise 17-year-old. All right, so verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. What a great phrase, fatter in flesh. Then all the youths who ate the king's food, so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, all of them. So after 10 days, just crushing vegetables and drinking, you know, water or whatever. I love it. Daniel and his friends look fatter in flesh, which is odd when all you've done is eat vegetables, right? Like how mad would you be if you ate nothing but vegetables this January and I saw you and was like, you're looking great, man, very fat and flesh, you know, like, like you would not be happy, but that's what happened, okay? And so the, the steward sees it and he's like, oh man, they look way better than everybody else. And you see what he does? He changed the diet of the whole group. Here's what's starting to happen. Daniel's personal convictions are starting to lead to influence. Do you notice that? Here's what we know. Some people are thermometers and other people are thermostats. What's a thermometer do? Thermometer just tells you the temperature, right? It just, it just registers what everybody else is doing. The room is this temperature. But what's a thermostat do? A thermostat changes the temperature. You see, Daniel was a thermostat kind of person. He, he put a stake in the ground. He said, look, I'm going to live with convictions. I'm going to live with principles. I'm going to take a stand. And because he did that, he actually ended up changing the entire group that he was a part of. You see, God is calling you to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. He's calling you not to just go along with the flow, but redirect the flow. To be the person in your group of friends that stands up and says, no, this is what is true, and I'm going to live out these convictions. And when you do, you know what you'll find? Courage and conviction are contagious. They just are. Courage and conviction are contagious. Unfortunately, pessimism and fear and negativity are also contagious. And you're like, yeah, don't raise your hand, but you're like, yeah, I've seen that happen. And you know where I've seen this happen a lot in the church is with baptism. It's really fascinating. There'll be a whole group of people. It might be a family. It might be a, a group of college students. It might be a group of peers or whatever. And all of them need to get baptized. Like none of them have been baptized or, you know, they were baptized when they were kids, but they weren't really Christians at that point. They all need to get baptized, but nobody's doing it. And then one person, one person, like one girl or one guy just says, that's it. I'm putting a stake in the ground. I'm getting baptized, even though it makes me uncomfortable, even though I don't like being in front of people, even though I have to get wet, even though I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about it. I'm doing it. I'm Danieling this thing, right? I'm putting, putting my foot down. I'm doing this thing. You know what often happens? Oh man, people start falling like dominoes, right? It's just like we're baptizing eight people at a time because one person was courageous and had conviction and that became contagious and the rest of the group is like, oh, I should probably do that too. God is calling some of you to be a Daniel in your group of friends for baptism. Honestly, there are some people that aren't gonna get baptized until they see you get baptized. And then they're gonna be like, thank you so much for taking that step. It helped me take that step, right? So, some of some of you, God wants you to be a Daniel for sharing the gospel, for evangelism, for inviting your friends. Because nobody else in your group is going to do that. They're not going to share the gospel until they hear about you sharing the gospel. And they're like, whoa, and you didn't die? And you're like, yeah, it's the craziest thing. I didn't die. You know, like I shared the gospel, didn't die. And they're like, this is interesting, right? Like this is a new revelation for me. I could actually share the gospel and not die. Um, so that's what, that's what Daniel did with his, his group of friends. And I really believe that is what God is calling some of you to do. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel, in particular, had understanding in all visions and dreams. We're going to see that later in the book. At the end of the time, so the end of the university education, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, so the most powerful man in the world. And the king spoke with them. This is like exit exams, okay? And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. That means they were brought into his, onto his staff team. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the, the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Silas, or King Cyrus. So here's what happened. Um, God gave Daniel and his friends special insight into learning and literature and special insight into man, dreams and visions. And when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, he was like, these guys are ten times better than everybody else I've got. So he brought them under his staff. And Daniel's going to go on to spend 70 years from the time he's 17 to the time he's in his late 80s in an uh, influential political position in the kingdom of Babylon, right? I mean, it's going to be really, really crazy. And the rest of the book of Daniel is really exciting, okay? Like, we're going to have, like, dreams and visions. There's going to be, like, handwriting on the wall. There's going to be lion's den. There's going to be fiery furnaces. Like, it's going to get really, really exciting. But can we have an honest moment? Chapter 1 is very boring, right? Teenage boys decide to become vegetarians, right? Like, what is more boring than that? Like, Paul, you know, like, swipe next. Like, I'm not watching that on Netflix, right? But, but here's what we have to see. It was the commitments Daniel made here that prepared him for a life of faithfulness and fruitfulness and influence later. You see that? You see, oftentimes we think that, like, man, there's going to be some epic moment in our life where we're going to, like, stand up for Christ. Or, like, we're going to have this epic, like, all-or-nothing moment in our life, and that's when we're really going to make the decision. It's like, that's not how it works. You see, you're not going to be prepared for those moments if you don't make those commitments now. That's what, he made commitments about food, right? I mean, this was not the most intense thing that is going to happen in Daniel's life, but it prepared him for the rest of his life. So what I'm going to do is draw out the three commitments that we see he made in this chapter with the hopes that you and I would make these same commitments so that we could live faithful lives in our culture just like Daniel did in his. All right, if you're taking notes, here's number one. I will trust God's sovereignty. I will trust God's sovereignty. 2020 has been a hard year. There is no question about it. But one of the most interesting things that I've observed is how people um, experiencing the same thing have responded very differently. You notice this? So some people are steadfast, other people are stressed. Some people are poised, other people are panicked. Like very similar context, seeing the same data, seeing the same circumstances, and yet responding in very, very different ways. Well, why is that? It's because their worldviews are different. What they think fundamentally about the world is different. And the lens through which you view events will impact how you respond to them, right? I mean, we all, we all get this, right? To put it another way, the way you view things determines the way you do things. The way you view things determines the way you do things. Well, three different times in this chapter, Daniel used the phrase, God gave. God gave uh, Nebuchadnezzar victory over Jerusalem. God gave Daniel favor with the chief of eunuchs. And God gave Daniel and his friends the ability to interpret dreams and, and gave him wisdom and literature. That was Daniel's way of affirming his belief in what is called God's sovereignty, okay? God's sovereignty, that God's plan was being accomplished no matter how crazy the circumstances became. Another way to think of God's sovereignty is this. Everything is under control. You're just not the one controlling it. Everything is under control. You're just not the one controlling it. Let me ask you, do you believe in God's sovereignty? Do you believe in God's sovereignty? Do you believe that God is in control of this world? Not intellectually, but actually. Not intellectually, like, oh, yeah, yeah, it says that in the Bible, I believe that, but actually. You see, part of what 2020 has done is it has revealed how many of us don't actually believe in God's sovereignty. Why do I say that? Because our actions and our attitudes and our fears and our anxieties reveal that we don't actually think someone that is all-powerful and gracious and wise is in control of our lives, right? We kind of tell on ourselves in the way that we respond. And I, I put myself in this category. I think we're all prone to this. But let's just, let's just think about this for a moment. If, if you believe, if I believe, if we believe that God created the cosmos by speaking a word, 
and that Jesus Christ took on flesh for us, and that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for us, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, and that three days after being buried in the ground, Jesus Christ was resurrected in victory, and that 40 days later, he was ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of the heavenly Father, full of authority and power, and that one day, Jesus Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. If we believe all of that, let me ask you a question. What business do we have living lives defined by fear and foreboding? Right? Like what business do we have acting like our friends and our family members and our neighbors and the news outlets who believe this? The world is a random assortment of chaos where the strong have eaten the weak for billions of years and there's no purpose and there's no one controlling any of it. Like what business do we have claiming fundamental Christian beliefs that go all the way back to the Apostles' uh, Creed and not living differently than those around us. You see, unfortunately, our culture is dominated by a spirit of fear, a spirit that says, what if, what if, what if, what if. But friends, if you are a Christian, you do not have a spirit of fear. Do you know what you have? You have a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Because we believe Jesus is on his throne, we do not say what if, we say even if. Because Jesus is on his throne, we don't say, what if, what if, what if, what if? We say, even if. That, this is what this looks like. Even if things get really, really bad, Jesus is still enthroned. Even if all of my fears come to pass, Jesus is still enthroned. Even if I get the coronavirus, even if the vaccine isn't as effective as I hoped it would be, even if my political candidate doesn't win this particular election, even if this, even if that, even if I don't get into the grad program, even if this relationship doesn't work out, even if I lose my job, even if I can't have kids, like no matter what it is, if Christ is on his throne, you have hope. You simply do. Do you believe in God's sovereignty? Do you? Can we, talk, can we talk as a family for a second? So if you're like new here, like, forgive me, okay? This is just kind of like for the family, okay? I was sitting in a barbershop getting my hair cut on Friday, literally just finished writing my sermon, finishing it, okay? So I just wrote this point, and I'm sitting there, and you know like how you can see in the mirrors, like the TV, right? You can't hear it, but you can see it. It was like CNN or something, and it was some like really intense headline going on, and I found myself like getting anxious, you know, like I found myself like tightening up and I was like, I have got to stop it, right? Like I just wrote this, I just wrote this. Like I just wrote like, no, God is sovereign. My hope is not in CNN. It's not in Fox News. It's not in whatever news outlet you watch. It is in that the Lord is enthroned. So can we just have a moment? Can we say this together? Just stop it, right? Like, like we've just got to stop it. Here, let me give you some things to stop doing, okay? I know everybody wants to start things in 2021. Also a good idea to stop some things. Let's, let's do this together, you ready? Let's stop checking the news every four minutes. Same news right? Same things have happened. Let's stop checking the news every four minutes. Let's also stop inserting pessimism and foreboding into every conversation that we have. Well, you know, I don't know if the vaccine's going to be that good, right? Well, I think this is going to last a lot longer than people think. You don't know that. I don't. Like, we don't know. Like, how about let's do this. Let's stop freaking out about a bunch of things that we can't control. How about that, right? Like, let's stop getting super worked up and thinking, like, if we just have enough data, if we just read enough internet articles, you fives on the Enneagram, like, I can control it, right? You're like, no, you're, some of you are, like, tapping your husband. You can't, right? Like, you can't, I can't. I know it's easy to do. I was doing it in the barbershop, okay? But we've got to stop it. Because, friends, what we have is a hope that is so much better than what the news can give us. It's a hope that Jesus Christ really is ruling and reigning, and Jesus Christ really does love you, and Jesus Christ really is in control, and if that's true, then you can be like Daniel. You want to know who had some uncertainty in his life? Daniel, right? Daniel's like, well, I serve a guy who routinely kills people that like displease him. 
time to go to work, you know, like you thought your boss was bad, right? But Daniel learned to trust God's sovereignty and it enabled him to be steadfast and to have poise in the midst of an incredibly uncertain world. You know what it did? It gave him influence. Because haven't you noticed that one person who brings poise and steadfastness into a group brings the whole level of panic down? Haven't you also noticed that one person who brings fear and panic, and well, did you see the latest research from whatever website you found, like just raises, it's like mob mentality. So let's be people that sow poise and peace, not people that sow fear and panic. Can we do that together? And we do that by saying, I will trust God's sovereignty. Okay, I will trust God's sovereignty. Here is the second commitment we see Daniel make. Number two, I will live with personal conviction. I will live with personal conviction. Conviction. In verse 8, it says that Daniel resolved himself that he would not drink the wine and he would not eat the meat. Now, what's interesting is scholars don't know why, okay? So it's like the meat, maybe it was offered to idols, so that would make it unclean, but the vegetables would have been too, right? So you're like, well, I don't really understand that. And there's nothing in the Old Testament that says wine is defiling ever, anywhere. And so people aren't entirely sure, like, why he picked this particular thing to, like, put a line in the sand. I think the reason is, like, you just have to put a line in the sand somewhere, don't you? Like, if you're going to live for Christ, if you're going to be man, salt and light in our culture, you have got to put a line in the sand somewhere, and no matter where you do it, it will always seem a little bit arbitrary to some people, right? So, like, wh- like why won't you watch that Netflix show? You watch this one, you're just like, like I don't know. This, this just feels over the line to me, right? Let me tell you a show that's definitely over the line, Game of Thrones, okay? That's for free, so if you're watching that, stop it, okay? Uh, here's the second one. I'd like six people leave the church over that, fine. Um, here, here's, here's another one. Uh, man, I just, I just, I don't really feel like it's wise for me to go there. Well, well, why not? Like, what's wrong with those people? What's wrong with that place? There's nothing wrong with those people. There's nothing wrong with that place. I just, knowing me and knowing my past and knowing my present temptations and knowing what I hope for the future, it just doesn't seem wise for me to go there, right? You kind of have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. And I learned a concept that's really helpful from a pastor friend of mine. He says, we need to live with both biblical truth and personal conviction, okay? Biblical truth and personal conviction. Here's the difference. Biblical truth is something in the Bible that's true for every Christian in every place, no matter what. Personal conviction is how you, as a Christian, live that out in your life. So, example, biblical truth, do not get drunk. Personal conviction, how will you keep yourself from getting drunk? Well, I, uh, I only drink on vacation, or two beers is my limit, right? Or I only drink with my spouse, or I don't drink at all, right? Like, I know a guy in our church who, man, came, you know, when he, when he was saved, he came out of a life of pretty heavy drinking. So he just said, look, my limit is, like, I will no longer touch the hard stuff. Like, I'm only, because that was a really big part of my story, like, I'm just going to, beers, two beers is my limit, right? That's a great way to kind of take biblical truth and apply personal conviction. Here's another one. The Bible says, um, educate your kids in the Lord, okay? Biblical truth. How you do that is personal conviction, okay? Maybe homeschool, maybe private school, maybe public school, maybe university model. I, you know, I don't know what it is, but you've got to have some way to do it, and it's going to be different based on, man, your, your life stage and, and where you are and what your gifts are. Um, what can get unhealthy is when we take our personal convictions and we start trying to apply them to other Christians. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, uh, it's when we start thinking things like this, well, if they really loved Jesus, they would do what I do, right? Like, they would have my standards for X, Y, or Z, and, and that can be really unhealthy. And unfortunately, when churches become um, really, really religious, right, and, and kind of judgy, this is usually what's happened. It's like, we've gone beyond what the Bible actually teaches, and now we're like taking personal applications, and we're trying to apply it to everybody. But I'll be honest with you, I think the bigger danger for a church like ours is not that. I think it's the inverse, that we would nod our heads at biblical truth, but never have any personal convictions. Like, would never be willing to put a line in the sand. And unfortunately, millennials are sort of infamous for this, right? Now, none of you, right? None of you would ever do this, but other millennials out there in other churches. Um, And millennial Christians love to do this. You know what they love to do? They love to just throw mud at the church. 
and be like, the church is missing it. And they want to talk all about how like the church doesn't care about these issues that I care about. And like the church doesn't care about the poor and the marginalized and all these things. And that's true. Like it is a biblical truth that God's people are called to love and to care for and to serve the least and the last in our community. But here's what often happens. I found it's very discouraging. When you press into the life of that millennial, you know what you find? Not only is he not caring for the least and the last, he's not even going to church. So he, it's just total hypocrisy. It's like nodding my head at biblical truth, like, yeah, like, man, I'm just going to be a prophet. I'm going to yell at the church and critique them. And it's like, well, why don't we start with you? You know what we actually need in the church? You know what I would love in this church, and I want some of you to be this for us? I want it to be inverted. I want you to be full of personal conviction about serving the least and the last in our community, and I want you to be a Daniel in our church for that. I want you to be a thermostat in our church. I don't want you to, like, send me a bunch of emails and complain about how we're not doing enough, and then I'm like, well, great. Would you, like, get involved? You're like, well, I'm way too busy. Like, I, you know, like, I've got all this stuff I'm doing. I'm like, okay, well, email me in a year when you're doing something, and we'll talk. So here's what I want. I want some of you to be, like, passionate about it. I want you involved at food banks. I want you involved in homeless ministry in town. I want you involved in our community making a meaningful difference, and I want you bringing your friends with you. I want you to be a thermostat for us, okay? We need that. We, we call them local outreach champions. We need some of you to be a champion for ministry in our city, okay? Because the, the church is not like pastors. It's not like me and Justin. It's, it's the body, and Romans 12 says that the body is made up of many different parts, and they minister in different ways. And so the way you need to minister in our church might be in our community, okay? So less Facebook posts and more active activity in the community. Can we do that? Okay, I will live with personal convictions. Jesus said, you are called to be salt and light in the world. The only way that we'll ever actually be salt and light in the world or in our community is if we hold on to both of those, if we have biblical truth and if we have personal conviction, Okay. Here's the last thing. Number three, I will trust God to bless me as I obey. I will trust God to bless me as I obey. What's interesting is each time Daniel honored God through obedience, God honored Daniel in the eyes of his superiors. Did you notice that? Now, that doesn't mean that every time you, you obey God, you're going to get a promotion. Okay, that's, that's not what that, don't, don't take that away. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is you can trust God to take care of you as you honor him. Second Chronicles 16.9 is a pretty amazing promise. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth, to give strong support to those, who heart is, to those whose heart is blameless toward him. What that means is when you obey the Lord, he promises to give you strong support. So my question is, where do you need to obey the Lord? Where do you need to have a Daniel moment? Maybe for you, it's baptism, right? You know you need to get baptized, you just haven't done it. We're having a baptism service January 31st right here. We would love to talk to you about getting baptized. Maybe for you, it's the weekender. You just need to get connected. You've been putting it off. You're saying, oh, this is a bad time. Friends, there is never a bad time to obey God. There's just not. Come to the weekend or make it your month. Maybe it's giving. Maybe you know you should be tithing, you know you should be giving, but you just keep putting it off like after the holidays and after I get my debt paid off and after this and after that. And it's just like, look, it's time. Maybe it's inviting a coworker. Like either somebody that's been on your heart and you know what you did, you did what I did. You're like, oh, I'll do that after the holidays, right? It's amazing how much we're gonna get done after the holidays, isn't it? Right? And here we are after the holidays. So now is your time, okay? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for you, but I know when you start trying to obey the Lord, two things are going to happen. Number one, he will be your strong support. But number two, you're going to realize how hard it is, right? When you start trying to live like Daniel, you're going to fail a lot, and it's going to be really hard, and it's going to show you your incredible need for the truer and better Daniel, which is Jesus Christ. You see, every character in the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus, and we see this clearly in Daniel's life. Well, how do I mean? Well, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with food. Jesus resolved not to defile himself with sin, right? Daniel left God's city and lived as an exile in Babylon. Jesus left God's presence and lived as an exile in the world. Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus stood before Pilate. 
But Jesus wasn't lifted up into a position of power and authority. Jesus was lifted up on a cross to die. And Jesus didn't experience the blessing of God for his obedience. Jesus experienced the curse of God for his obedience. Why? So that you and I could be forgiven for every single time that we fail to live like David. For every single time that you fail to live with personal conviction. For every single time that you live fearfully rather than faithfully. Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. Friends, in the cross of Christ, there is grace for your past. And in the resurrection of Christ, there is power for your future. So that through simple repentance and faith in Christ, you can be empowered to live a faithful life in the midst of an uncertain, confused, scary, anxiety-creating world. Let that be true of us in 2021. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness to Daniel and your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that as a church we would apply these things. Lord, that we wouldn't just believe things in our minds, but they would move to our hearts and to our hands, that we would be changed as a church, that we'd be a compelling counterculture to our city. So God, give us faith. I pray for those who don't know you in this room, that you give them faith to repent and believe. And I pray for those that do know you, that you give them faith to believe in you more. We need you, Lord, in this year, just like we needed you last year. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to these things, would you stand?